Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hey everyone, welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. This is Mark, and I'm joined today by my friend Todd. How are you doing, Todd? I'm great, Mark. How are you today? I am doing well. Just got back from some late ice perch fishing up in northern Minnesota with my son on uh, on Friday, and uh, had had a great time. Got into a, some, you know, it was it was it was a pretty good bite. It took us a while to find the find the fish, but uh, we found him midday, and we got into some some bigger ones. He got he got just a monster of a perch, which was a lot of fun. Are you guys uh, you, you guys doing any any spring fishing for perch in New York? Is that something you guys do? Oh yeah, it's on my mind, and I'm thinking about it. And so the next couple of weeks, um, I fish over on Lake Champlain. That's a really good fishery in this neck of the woods, and the perch fishing is really good in early to mid March over there. Yeah, so if I can slide out, maybe next weekend sometime for a few hours, I'll be heading over there. It's uh, it's the time to be out. It's it's great. The weather's usually good. The sun's higher in the sky. You take these early March days where it's, you know, 40, 45, even higher, and it's wonderful to be on the ice. It is, you know, it, it's, it's one of my favorite things, you know, get sitting, sitting out on a bucket and shirt sleeves and getting a tan and it's, it's pretty comfortable and a pretty nice time of uh, time of year. You know, today I'm, I'm actually, when we finish up recording this, I'm going to, I'm, I'm experimenting with some different things. We, I, I made up uh, some of the, uh, the fish eggs from the perch, uh, these rosacks and, and, uh, fried them up this morning. They were great. And I'm going to do some yellow perch caviar this afternoon. So, uh, having, having some fun in some different ways with the, with the perch too, and trying to harvest as much as possible out of them. Yeah. I can't wait to see how that turns out for you. I am fascinated with the caviar aspect of things. So with that, like with the caviar that you're making, are you basically like, salting it in a brine of some sort with water and salt or how, how does that work? Exactly. Everything mm-hmm. I've, I've studied up on, and it's pretty straightforward of just using a brine, uh, soaking the eggs in, in a, in a solution, maybe around, you know, I've heard different concentrations, but probably around 20%, 25%, uh, a salt solution and, um, maybe 20, 30 minutes, and experimenting based on your your preference for for saltiness and uh, so it's it's pretty straightforward and you know these these eggs are are pretty um they're not really colorful let's say like a, like a salmon roe or something and uh, and they're small so it won't be your typical type of uh, caviar fish eggs uh, that you get in a lot of different settings but but I think they'll be really good you know when I when I fried them up this morning, um, you know, when when you cook them, they they turn very very white and and um, and uh, and and you don't get that pop like you do when they're when they're raw. But uh, but it was really it was really tasty, and so I, it's fun to try different things. Yeah, it's fun to try different things. I love that. So uh, now you've got me excited, and I think I might have to slide out and fish next weekend. So we'll keep you, <laughs> you posted. Better, <laughs> you better get out there. Get out there. It's, it's yep. a very short window when you get to do this. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so today, um, 
I'm talking on, on today's podcast with uh, Tony Jones, who uh, you have met, uh, and he has a podcast called The Reverend Hunter. And uh, Tony is a, actually, he's, he's an ordained minister. He actually has his PhD in theology from, uh, he mentions it in the podcast, I think Princeton. And uh, Tony and I have always had good conversations about the you know, the philosophy of hunting, what goes into it, some of the ethical questions of different aspects of hunting. So I think people, and especially new hunters, are, are going to enjoy listening to this conversation. And, you know, we tackle some of those issues of, you know, of, of death and and what it means and the, the ethics of hunting when it comes to harvesting your own food, et cetera. And so I, I think uh, I, I enjoy those types of conversations and I think people will enjoy listening to it. Yeah, I can't wait to listen to this one. Tony is one of my favorite podcasters out there. And so, like, if there's somebody to talk to about all of these topics, Mark, he's a great person to talk to. And I'll say that. You know, I heard his podcast, one of my favorite episodes recently, uh, he had interviewed Barbara Brown Taylor, who is a uh, like an ordained minister in Georgia. She's got a farm and she was on Times 100 Most Influential People list a while back. And uh, I listened to that podcast that they had and it was so, so good. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that Tony talks about that he brings to the table. So this is exciting. I can't wait. Yeah, no, he's he's great on on podcasting. He's got he's got a very good perspective on a lot of issues, and uh, and I think it's it's a good medium for him. And you know, we talk about a few things in there, including I'll, I'll put links in the show notes to his podcast. Uh, I was a guest on it one time a, a while ago, one of the early episodes of his podcast, which was fun. Um, and then I referenced several different books in there that are a good sort of. Uh, for the new hunter in terms of philosophy. And so that those will be in the show notes too. So if people are interested uh, after listening to it, go to the show notes page for this podcast, episode 23, I believe. And uh, there'll be show notes for, uh, for those with those links. So with that, let's jump into it with Tony Jones. So I am here today with my good friend, Tony Jones, otherwise known as the Reverend Hunter. How are you doing, Tony? I am good, Mod Karn. How are you doing? <laughs> doing well, doing well. Good. I uh, just finished, last night I went over and, and helped uh, a couple people skin out a deer. Mm -hmm. uh, a young gentleman by the name of Rennell got his first whitetail, his first time hunting this weekend. Awesome. Uh, Eric, Eric Jensen. I think, you know, Eric. Was oh his yeah, mentor. sure. Yeah. Eric was his mentor and, and took him out on a pretty serious whitetail hunt. They hiked back into some public land about two and a quarter miles and then did, uh, did a, put a, put a spike camp in place and, and tented out in, hmm. in the cold weather. And he got a, a really nice large doe. So it was fun to go over and chat with him last night and, uh, that's and, awesome. And help those guys with their, yeah. With I helped, I helped two guys. Um, one, his first time ever whitetail hunting it, on opening weekend. And then last weekend I helped a guy, I think it was the second deer he's ever shot. Um, and you know, he, he was like, uh, 
I kind of forgot to watch those YouTube videos on how to field dress a deer. I'm like, all right, buddy, here we go. <laughs> I'll walk <laughs> you through it. So isn't that fun? And Mark, I mean, how about the difference between those two weekends, between oh the first gosh. weekend of Minnesota deer season where it was 7D? Yeah. And yeah. the second weekend where it was, I don't know what, 30 or, you know. Probably about 30, <laughs> snowy, windy, cold. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was really something. But I had a great deer season. In fact, with COVID, man, I, I said to my, I, I shot two deer on opening day of, of firearm season in Minnesota. I shot in the morning a two and a half year old doe. I mean, I'm, I'm estimating their ages based on their sizes, but a two and a half year old doe and then a two and a half year old buck in the afternoon. And so it was a lot of work. I spent the whole day Sunday butchering, and yeah, as we already mentioned, it was warm. So you know, getting a, getting the meat cooled down and everything was um, a big process. Plus, we're in a CWD zone, so I had to, you know, bring all the carcasses to dumpsters and and drop yeah. the heads off for testing, etc. But anyway, uh, can barely close the door of my freezer downstairs. If there's so much venison in there, you know, you open it up and like vac sealed bags of venison just come like avalanching out of the freezer onto the floor every time and then i said to my wife a couple of days ago maybe i'll go back up north and try to shoot another deer <laughs> she was like why? why would you do that and i said because of covid i'm so bored <laughs> i can i can at least go hunting you know uh, well that is great you got a lot of venison yeah i uh for the first time ever up at my deer camp for opening weekend, um, same place I've hunted with family and friends my entire life for, for mm-hmm. opening weekend. For the first time ever, I I quartered out my deer riding camp, skinned it because it was so warm. And I brought yeah. my really big cooler along and wanted to get that meat on ice as quickly as possible with yeah. those temps, yeah. which is a very rare problem to have on minnesota uh opener yeah i usually like to hang it i mean last year i shot a deer opening weekend and i hung it in the garage up at our property and then went home and then went back up the next weekend and did all the butchering after it had hung for a whole week in perfect weather for hanging deer but none of that this year do you usually bring it home to the twin cities to to do the butchering yeah, usually, usually I'm I'm bringing home the whole animal, just field dressed, okay, and uh, and then hanging it in the garage and and, and doing all the butchering. Um, so yeah, this was a, a little different this year, but I wanted to mm-hmm. get that get that meat cooled down and make yeah. sure I didn't spoil any of it. But um, yeah, so you know yeah, that's that's great to hear. And so what I'd like to do today, I guess, maybe start by. You know, talking a little bit about you. You've you've got this podcast. You do these things under the the name the Reverend Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe share a little bit of your background. So, where does that come from? Are you yeah. really a reverend? <laughs> I I am. I no one has yet revoked my ordination or excommunicated me from the church. I don't know if they even still do that uh, these days. But yeah, I'm a reverend. I grew up in the twin cities, um, with, a, you know, we, we had a lake cabin that my grandparents purchased in 1964, not far from where you grew up. 
uh, in Brainerd. Um, and so we were kind of an outdoorsy family and that we like went to the, went to the cabin and we fished for sunnies and crappies. Um, and we did some car camping when I was a kid, but not, there was no hunting to speak of and no firearms in my home growing up. Um, my dad was not, you know, very outdoorsy guy. He, you know, he did his best, but even like when we went fishing, it was always with my mom. Um, but I did grow up very religious. I mean, in fact, my family was like kind of typical Midwestern mainline churchgoers, um, in a congregational church in, in the twin cities. But I was the most religious member of the family for sure. And got really involved in church activities as a kid and very, at a, at a young age, like in seventh grade was the first time I even, I articulated that I was going to be a minister. Um, I just felt this calling to do that. And I That's pursued that. Yeah, I pursued that. I mean, I, I just was kind of single-mindedly focused on that all the way through middle school, high school, college, and uh, went to college out east. Um, and then immediately went to seminary in California upon my college graduation and spent three years there getting a Master's of Divinity degree. And after that, spent a few years um, doing like youth youth mission trips for church youth groups, uh, mainly on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and then became a pastor at the same church at which I grew up. Did that for seven years and in 2003, with a young family in tow, moved out to uh, New Jersey for a PhD in theology, which I got. But um, as you know, there's this is where my kind of professional life was derailed by my personal life, which is a story you're you know you're familiar with because you and I have talked about it privately. But um, you know, in the middle of that my marriage fell apart and it was super ugly. And, uh, you know, when you have an, an ugly divorce in, in most lines of work, it's not a big deal. You know, like you were in corporate marketing, right? People go through ugly divorces and you're like, well, sorry to hear that, but you know, it doesn't really affect you at work. But if you're a pastor, it it pretty much destroys your life. <laughs> you know, yeah. nobody wants a pastor who's going through an ugly divorce with a custody fight. So my life kind of hit a big reset button in my forties. And, um, and yeah, that's, it's that, that, that was the time when hunting became a, a more important part of who I am. So, you, I think, define yourself, yeah, as a, as an adult onset hunter, mm-hmm. as uh, Tovar Ceruli would uh, would call it. And um, I mean, how does how did how did hunting that idea? You didn't grow up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't even have it in in the early years of of adult life. What was the draw to to start hunting? It's it's such a late chapter of a life yeah that's a good question it's one i've thought about quite a bit recently looking back on it 
like so many things that happen in your, you know, in your late twenties, early thirties, life was just a whirlwind for me at that time. I mean, I got, I don't know, married when I was 28, got my first job as a pastor right around then bought a house, got a dog, you know, pretty soon my wife was pregnant. You know, I'm building a career, building a young family. Those days are like I said, just like a whirlwind. I had gone, you know, to a, I had gone to a game farm or a shooting preserve maybe in college. I have these, I have these like photo photos of going with my uncle to a shooting preserve and I don't know, wearing like those kind of yellow work gloves with the orange, you know, or red wristband kind of thing and like a foam trucker hat. I mean, I didn't have like any blaze orange on or anything. I I think I just grabbed what was ever was in the closet and that was probably where I shot my first pheasant. But um, it was in my late twenties that there was a guy who went to the church who was about 10 years older than me. And I don't know, he invited me to go duck hunting. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like something I would like to do. And it was not like, Hey, let's just go out. We're going to go do a day hunt and, and, you know, around the twin cities. No, man, we went, (laughs) we went up into Lake of the woods for a week, <laughs> like into the Canadian part of Lake of the Woods. We didn't see another human being for a week. We were in the middle of nowhere. Like this That's is, hardcore. oh man. And and it's like, this is like 19, probably 1999, I bet. 98, 99, 2000. No cell phones. He had, he had a bag phone, like one of those old, old, early, early cell phones that was in a bag, you know, like in a, yeah. with a shoulder strap on it. But I don't think we got any reception up there. Oh, no. it was incredible, Mark. It was incredible. It was it was like nothing I had ever done in my life. I immediately fell in love with it from just this experience of duck hunting with this guy. So it's interesting you bring up that duck hunting, you know, outside of that that uh, shooting preserve experience, um, which, you know, generally those are pretty tame. Yeah. You talk about your next experience doing a deep dive into duck hunting. Now, I just I was out duck hunting this weekend down in southeast Minnesota in the Mississippi, and um, we were talking while we were out there. I said, you know, I, I still question the merits of taking somebody duck hunting on their first hunt or early hunt because it can be so challenging. You know, we were hauling all kinds of gear. We had several dozen decoys. We had goose floaters. We had, yeah. we had uh, dozens and dozens of duck floaters. And we were, we were hauling them back in probably, I don't know, a couple hundred yards through the marsh. But it was tough walking. And then, yeah. and then putting out the decoys in the dark. And, and it's hard to walk in this mucky bottom. And it's cold. And it's snowing a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and it is one of those situations where, you know, I love it. You love it. And I think once you're a hunter and you understand the whole context of everything, even though it can be physically a, a difficult situation, maybe what some people would describe as miserable, we love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had gone through this experience early on and you fell in love with it. So like when you were up on Lake of the Woods, was 
what was the weather like? Was it tough or was it, I mean, as much as you were back up, I mean, you're on the border, you're in Canada, that's big water, Lake of the Woods. Yeah. Um, Was it windy and, and, uh, and tough weather or was it pretty nice? Well, it varied. I, I, I went up there two or three times with Doug to his cabin uh, in Lake of the Woods on the Canadian side. And we had blue sky, gorgeous days. And we had days where, you know, there were three foot breakers and the snow was coming at us horizontally. <laughs> Love it. I mean, it was intense, man. And I, you know, I was an early hunter. I didn't really have all the right gear. Um, I remember being cold and wet. I, uh, you know, you and I have talked, I've done some writing about this recently in a, a book manuscript I have. And, and there's a whole chapter about this hunt. I mean, we almost died, really. Uh, he, we, we got lost one night on the way back Ooh. from a hunt. And we're, you know, we're in a... 12 foot duck boat with two guys, two big black labs and probably 60 decoys plus all of our, you know, shotguns and, and ducks and everything else. And, uh, yeah, we got lost on the way back and it was one of those nights. It was super foggy. We had a spotlight. We couldn't see. Um, and Lake of the woods is, is, as you know, Lake of the Woods is basically a flooded swamp. So there are just it's very shallow and there are rocks everywhere that can talk you can dump your boat over. Um and I had a, a really honestly I had a spiritual experience on the night we got lost because I real it was the, probably the closest I'd ever been to death, maybe to this day still is or you know, I, I just knew that if something went wrong uh that was it that was going to be it and i was okay with it for the first time in my life i think i kind of confronted that and i i was like i'm okay with it and i uh, and i felt completely safe and comfortable in the hands of this guy doug who had taken me out there um yeah, he was almost a godlike figure to me in that I gave my what I mean by that is I gave myself over to him. I submitted myself to him in a way that I had always been told I was supposed to to God. And you know, you 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 think you're doing that, but you never really do it. But here I was and and I had a choice of either like to freak out and panic as we're slapping over waves and hitting rocks and trying to stay afloat and figure out where in the world we are in this massive, massive body of water. Or I could just give myself over and say, what will be, will be, and I'm okay with it. And I remember this moment of having that very spiritual experience, internal experience in this boat with this guy. So yeah, it was super profound for me. And I will just say I totally agree with you. Duck hunting for most people is probably not a, a gradual introduction into hunting. Duck hunting is very intense. Um and but I'm an intense person and I like intense experiences. So it probably was the perfect way to introduce me to hunting, but I, I agree with you. It's it's that it's probably not the best on-ramp for for many people. 
That's an interesting perspective on it of just your personality and, and how you feel like that corresponds to it. And it is, I mean, it's a, it can be an intense experience. It's, it's very social. Um, but there's very little margin of error, especially yeah. when you're water hunting versus field hunting. And, um, man, being, being on a big body of water like that in a little 12 foot duck boat, Ooh. it's dangerous. We were, we were just Kyle Hildebrand and I were talking about that this weekend of he's got this great mud motor, big, big, uh, duck boat now. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I've got a little 12 footer with a small, small motor. And, and we were talking about how dangerous it can be. And he said he switched to the big boat and the areas where he hunts because he had a near death experience. He was in hypothermia and it was bad. Mm-hmm. And I talked about a time I was up duck hunting by myself. It was probably 20 years ago. And, and, uh, everybody had left and I was staying an additional day and the snow was coming in, the wind was blowing and, and the ducks were flying. And I was super excited to get down to the lake. And I shot this, this mallard and went to pick it up and ended up uh, getting in a situation where the canoe flipped over mm. and, uh, and it was, it could have been really bad. Fortunately, I got back and, and had a, had coals in the fire back at the, back at camp where I was able to get myself dried out fairly quickly and not, mm. not getting into a really bad situation, but it's, yeah, it can be dangerous. Yeah, and, man. Uh, and we just passed the, you know, we just this week when we're, you and I are recording here, just passed the anniversary of the Armistice Day blizzard where a couple dozen duck hunters in Minnesota died because, you know, a storm came up on them. Yeah, when they weren't ready and yeah i i think that's right it it you can get yourself into some tricky situations in duck hunting it's the same in the boundary waters you know another place you and i both love and i like that part about the boundary waters i have yet to go into the boundary waters with a any kind of a garment in reach or any one of those kind of you know safety device rip cord safety devices but then you hear you know every single year if you live in minnesota you see stories in the newspaper about people get in trouble there some some guy got in real trouble just about a month ago up there and they had to do a pretty hairy rescue of this guy and he only got rescued because he had one of those devices so right right yeah no it's then in the you know and that's the part of it i think um, these outdoor adventures are exactly that they're adventures. There's no guarantees. It's, it's, I think it's a very American experience too, of, of self-reliance of mm-hmm. you're out there and you got to take care of yourself. Now, that being said, we are at a wonderful time for new people to come into this because, um, there are great technologies, whether it's this high tech clothing, which makes the experience that much more comfortable mm-hmm. to, the the technologies that keep you safe that allow you to have that that ripcord as you said um, to to hit the button if you get in trouble and know that the cavalry is gonna gonna be coming out um, and so I think it's I think it's a great thing that that those are there but I think also the adventure and the danger of it is a is a draw and, and an aspect of why why it's very different from most anything else and I think our our modern lifestyle. Yeah, but why it is we- so. It is so different, isn't it? From from almost everything else we do, and you know, I I was thinking the other day about like what's really the difference between going to a shooting preserve to shoot pheasants and driving out to South Dakota to shoot pheasants, and I think the main difference is you know when I 
when I step into a field in South Dakota, I don't know if there are pheasants in that field. I might yep. spend the next three hours, you know, working up and down a, a hundred acre plot of CRP with three other guys, and we see a couple hens, and that's it. And you know, you step into the shooting preserve, you know, there's there's going to be birds there because you paid a guy to put them out, and. There just aren't that many things we do in modern American life where you just, I mean, you think about that, Mark, you think about the difference between like our forebears, they, they would, they would plant fields in the spring, not knowing if they would have a harvest of crops in the fall, because, you know, maybe the rain never came that year. Maybe a hailstorm destroyed their entire crop. Maybe... The seed was bad. There, there was so much uncertainty in the lives of of generations upon generations of human beings who preceded us, and so much of that uncertainty has been removed from our daily lives. And I like the fact that you climb into a deer stand and you don't know if a white-tailed deer is going to walk by. You might sit in that deer stand for a week and not see a, a white-tailed deer. Right. Yeah, I think I think that is a very important component of it. And I think it is a draw for a lot of people nowadays. Uh, I've enjoyed seeing a lot of young people in their 20s, 30s come into hunting as of late and for the first time. And and it is that uncertainty, that chance, that unknown that is an integral part of what they appreciate. And I think over the last few decades prior to that, um, I think it was it was very different. I think there was a perspective a lot of times with people, whether they were new hunters or experienced to us, I wanna I wanna improve my odds as much as possible yeah. on the act of this hunt. And therefore, uh, you know, we see the 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 popularity of shooting preserves and other situations. And that exactly as you said, removes that uncertainty. And I think in the end, it makes the, a successful hunt by harvesting an animal, killing an animal. My perspective is it makes it less rewarding versus yeah. I went into an unknown situation and maybe, you know, hopefully with, with a lot of different species, um, you know, it's a native species to this area. Um, we don't know what the density is and, and we were successful. And uh, I think that's a rewarding experience. Yeah, I there, there's as well as being there's so many things that I love about hunting. You know, there are also some things that I find really frustrating being an adult onset hunter and kind of new to this culture and this community. And one of the things that really frustrates me is high, this high fence hunting or guys who you know go into a cervid farm and shoot some monster buck who's been bred and fed to have some crazy, outrageously unnatural rack. Um, and another thing that I don't understand and that frustrates me is how some hunters, you know, like in Minnesota, now wolves have been delisted. And now this is going to be a real hot topic among those <laughs> you, of us who, dive into this one, huh? <laughs> who hunt deer. Well, I just think like, why do we think we're the only predators on the landscape? 
Like, why do we think that we're the only people who get to eat white-tailed deer? And for that matter, I've never really understood antler point restrictions, which, you know, our good, our our mutual friend Rob Dreesline is a big fan of who hunts down in southern Minnesota. I, you know, the biggest deer we ever catch on our trail cameras is a nine or 10 point deer in central Minnesota. And I don't know about it's just not for me it's just not about shooting a deer with a huge rack and for me it's also not about being the only predator on the landscape i'm happy with the fact that there are also packs of wolves and coyotes i catch them on my trail cameras and they i know a wolf an adult wolf eats like an average of 20 white-tailed deer a year and I think that just keeps things in balance. I don't think I'm entitled to a deer every year. It's not a right that I have to shoot a deer every year, you know? So anyway, it's it's been interesting as an adult to move into this community and just see the different ways that people navigate these these questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you just touched on a whole slew of them. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Too many to cover, probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, there's this, I mean, and those are all, um, I think they're really subjective in nature. Um, you know, when it comes to wolves, you know, it's, you know, here in Minnesota, it's a hot topic. And yeah. uh, and there's a lot of perspectives. And I think there's validity to, to all sides. And I think there's good practical facts. And I think there's a lot of emotional perspectives, which are important also. Um, and I think it just as a community, it's just important to figure out what, what the appropriate level is. But, you know, you started going down some of these. You're so, tougher- you're so diplomatic, Mark. I love oh, yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'd be a great uh, politician. No, just kidding. That's an insult. Sorry, I take it back. <laughs> yeah, really. I, I don't know if I, if I like that. Um, well, let tell you what. Let's take this deeper, though. Let's go down this path because this is this is the purpose of this conversation today. You and I have talked about a lot of these things over over the years, and um, and I want to I want to go right into the deep end of the pool here and talk about the question that I think non hunters often often question and or are are confused by and i don't know whether the hunting community has a good answer to it and i often say um hunting itself comes down to you really have to experience it you can't explain it but it's an answer to the question of how can killing another living being be a spiritual, a deeply meaningful experience that is good. Hmm. And so, again, I'll just throw that one out there. Like, like what if somebody asks you that, uh, and, and, and people probably do ask you questions yeah. like that. Yeah. What's, what's, your, what's your response? What's your perspective on it? Well, you know, the first thing for the first thing for a lot of people that I say is, do you eat meat? And it's probably the same answer you have. And it, you know, the ninety-five percent of Americans eat meat. Right. It, it, it's like the, the 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 percentage of vegetarians has stayed for the last 50 years has not budged off of 
And it's it's interesting because you say that to people and they're I think they're shocked by it because it seems like everybody thinks they know more vegetarians than they used to. And that may be true, but um, it's probably only because we're getting older and you, you know, you just meet more people or whatever. But vegetarians make up about 5% of the population and hunters make up about 4% of the population, sadly declining. You know, it's a declining number, as you and I both know. So that means there's 91% of Americans who eat meat but don't hunt it. Uh, so the fact of the matter is if you're at, if somebody asks you why you hunt or about the killing, um, you know, that it, the chances nine, nine out of 10 chances that that person eats meat and doesn't kill the meat. So my first answer is always the same. If you eat meat, you are implicated in the killing of animals. That's just the fact you may not, you may outsource that killing of animals to other people and they're doing it for you and you've you know you you've it's out of sight out of mind it's done at a beef or pork or chicken processing plant but somebody's killing that animal and then you are consuming that flesh and and living off of that flesh and so you're implicated in it whether it's by swiping your credit card or by pulling a trigger that you know you that that you're engaged in it to to take it a step deeper and and you know most people will kind of roll their eyes and say like yeah I know and I probably shouldn't be but but to take it a step deeper I've been really um influenced by a, an argument made by a theologian named Jill Carroll whom I interviewed on my podcast a few weeks ago and she has a very short essay in a book I read that that influenced me greatly in which she writes about the cycle of predation. And she basically argues that we are all wrapped up in the cycle of predation. That is, I'm a predator, of course, because I am, you know, eating meat. And I'm and and she makes the argument, you know, you that you're even a predator if you're harvesting plants from your garden because those are also living beings and you're consuming those living beings. They may not be sentient as far as we know. Maybe they are sentient, but as far as we know, they're not, but they're not inanimate. I mean, they are living beings. They are creatures that we're consuming. You know, both flora and fauna are alive and we harvest them and consume them. And she says, you know, we're also prey. We're all prey because we're all going to die. So, I mean, I would just take like, let's just take COVID-19. Like, let's take the coronavirus. The coronavirus is a predator. It is preying on human beings. It finds hosts in human beings. It lives in human beings. It spreads to other human beings. And some of those human beings, it kills. It is a predator of our species that we are now going to fight against and try to eradicate. You know, it'll take us years probably, but we're going to try to eradicate that predator. But then there, you know, there's always another predator, Mark. There's cancer or there's Alzheimer's or there's heart disease or there's diabetes. 
We're, we're all being chased by predators all the time. And this is what I think Jill Carroll means by the cycle of predation. So I just think that by hunting, I am immersing myself in the cycle of predation. I'm being honest about my role as both predator and prey. And I think that by doing that eyes wide open and entering into that cycle, um, it does a couple things for me. For one, spiritually, you're asking like spiritually, what is it about for me? For one thing, um, I have noticed that it has put me much more in tune with the world around me. I was brought up like so many people who were brought up in in families that practiced religion with a, a very vertical kind of understanding. That is, I was always to be looking up, look up, like the God is, when you pray, look up, God is, or God is looking down on you and watching what you do. There was a real emphasis on that verticality, that relationship between God and human beings. And what hunting has done is it has focused me more toward the horizontal. I am more focused on when I'm out hunting, the prey that's around me, the pheasant I'm trying to find, my dog who's quartering in front of me, the hunters on either side of me, or I'm in a tree stand hunting a deer and I'm you know, scanning the forest for a deer and I'm trying to place my shot. So it's brought my, what I'm saying is it's brought my perspective from the vertical to the horizontal. That's that's one thing I'd say. And then the other thing, quite honestly, that has happened as I've hunted more and I think as I've crossed the threshold of the age of 50 is it's made me a lot more sanguine about death. Like I'm mm. much more okay with my own death because I am involved in death regularly. I mean, uh, you know, what day is it today? I It was... Uh, it was nine days ago I killed two deer. And these are, you know, these were 150 pound animals. I put my hands into their uh, innards and I pulled out their viscera that are the same size. You know, that deer heart is about the same size as a human heart. Their intestines, their stomach, their lungs, they're all about the same size as. Mine, it, it, it's it, it. It, I watched, you know, the the both of the deer. I watched them die from my ladder stand after I shot them. So, do uh, you think? Yeah. Do you think society to that point exactly? Um, do you think, speaking of modern society, that we not only are outsourcing our food. Uh, but we're also outsourcing all aspects of the reality of life and death. If you think of mortuary business, embalming, uh, these practices that uh, when people died in the past, most societies, uh, families took care of their dead yeah. and were part of that process and therefore had an appreciation for death and what it was. And do you think that, you know, the way I look at it is, is modern society, especially here in, in the U S is so many, there are so many layers of insulation 
from the reality of life. And we try to um, soften all of the edges. And I think for the uh, attempt of trying to be more compassionate and more sensitive to, uh, let's say, the violence of life and the difficulties of life, we, we put it at an arm's length and, and we try to fool ourselves that it doesn't exist. Absolutely, Mark. Absolutely, that's true. And, you know, it's, it's something that every future pastor is taught in seminary that, um, you know, you're going to come in contact with a lot of dead bodies and most people don't, haven't seen dead bodies. We have, we have secreted away our dead. We have hidden our dead. You know, there's that, there's that uh, funny scene in Monty Python, uh, Holy Grail, in which they're, you know, chanting, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. And they're kind of mocking the, you know, the dark ages when the, uh, during the Black Plague or something. When, but, but, it, but what, it, <laughs> what that scene serves to do is put just such a fine point on how our ancestors were so well acquainted with death. You know, every single family had children that did not survive childbirth. Many families had mothers that who died while giving birth in the family home, you know, and then multiple generations lived together. People died of disease, of accidents all the time in warfare. Yes, and we have, just as you say, we have... We have insulated ourselves from that by hiding it away. And I really, you know, I really do think that hunting, one of the things I love about hunting with my children who are, um, you know, teenagers and college students now is that it brings them face to face with death in a way that they would not otherwise uh have to confront because of the way our society has organized death. It really is, um, it, it really is a hidden business, and it's. I think it's deeply, deeply unfortunate, and it disconnects us from really th- the universal aspect of humanity is death. Like our mortality, there's nothing more central to our humanity than our mortality, and yet we you know, we pretend like we're immortal um, and hunting disabuses us of that myth. Hey everyone, it's Mark. I hope you're enjoying this conversation in the podcast. If you are new to hunting and you want to continue down the path to becoming a hunter, make sure you check out huntingcamp.live. This is our online learning portal and you can go try it out for free. Get a lesson and see what you think. We do video-based learning and there are outdoor mentors in our community who are there to help you and answer questions you might have and get you into your local hunting community so that you can start down this path to a new adventure. Again, just go to huntingcamp.live. So let's talk talk about um, different religions' perspective on, on, um, I guess, underlying philosophies and, and, and how it maybe relates to the outdoors in the natural world. And, and you brought up a moment ago, uh, 
I don't know. I don't know if the word verticality, if that's a real word or not, but I like it. It is. <laughs> yeah. It is. <laughs> I should, I should have known you're a doctor, you know, you, you, know, you know the right words. Um, so rather than the verticality between God and you as a person, you talked about this horizontal perspective. And um, I think when there are, and so getting to the spirituality side of hunting and the outdoors, you know, there are examples in so many religions, including Christianity, I think where there's an aspect of idols and symbols that are utilized so much uh, to reflect uh, God's creation. And what, what I heard you saying is you're looking out and going, the, the symbols are everywhere. If, if you believe in, in creation that God created this planet, mm-hmm. everything you look at out in the natural world is, is a symbol of that, is a, is a sign of that. Is that something do you think that, that, is, that starts to get to when people talk about the spirituality of hunting in the outdoors, what it, what it means? Yeah, I do. I, I, I get worried sometimes because I have read and I've seen, you know, there is a swath of Christian American hunting that does not share my theology or my politics that tends to be very conservative and they tend to, I mean, I, I'm not like making this up. This is like in, in the academic literature about it. They tend to, you know, say, well, in the book of Genesis, God gave Adam and Eve dominion over all the, you know, all the plants and animals. Therefore, we get to harvest as many of these animals as we want because we're the, like, basically, we're the bosses of the planet. There's, there's another, and really, I mean, and so bang, bang, it's why you see it on so much outdoor media, you know, it's like, whisper, 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 shoot the big animal, then lots of high fives. Sometimes the family saying a prayer around, around the dinner table at the end of the episode or something. It's, it's, it's very formulaic. and, And it goes back to this idea that we just have this like, unmitigated dominion over all flora and fauna. There's another way to read that passage that's also true to the to the Hebrew that's in the you know that's in the original at least as far back as we have um, copies of the originals. And that's that God told Adam and Eve to be caretakers of the earth caretakers of the plants and the animals, that we are to steward and shepherd them, that because we are the animals, you know, with with rationality, which is the one thing that, you know, according to the Christian tradition makes us godlike because we have rationality that animals don't seem to have. They seem to have only instinct. We also have instinct, but but we can override our instinct with our, you know, rationality is that we're to use that rationality then to care for the flora and the fauna. And if part of, you know, what one of the things I actually really appreciate about hunting, the part of the North American model of hunting that you're so familiar with 
is the conservation aspect that we really believe that what we're doing as as it's informed by our rationality, aka our best science from our wildlife biologists, is we are helping these species to thrive. And, you know, like let's take white-tailed deer, which you and I have both been talking about. We, you know, that we live in a state that has a great habitat for white-tailed deer, plenty of food and water and shelter, which is what they need. Not too many predators since there are not, you know, as nearly as many wolves and coyotes on the landscape as there used to be. And now they are under threat from disease. So our our predation, our hunting, our predation of that white-tailed deer is part of our stewardship of those of those, you know, creatures created by God that we while we hunt them and we therefore keep healthy populations so that they aren't ravaged by disease or or hunger. Right. Yeah, and that and that is I, I think that is a healthy perspective on it. And I hear you on the uh on the other sort of approaches and, and it can turn me off too in terms of a perspective that is we have this dominion, we as as people have this dominion over all natural resources and and are are able to utilize in whatever way we want. And yeah. let's check our brain at the door and not use feedback and understanding of the health of our planet to regulate what we're doing to me is just, um, I don't know, it's just folly. And so, uh, I think the perspective of, of being the caretakers is core, like you said, to what the North American model of conservation is. And that I think is reflected very well in so much of what is done within the hunting community. When you look at where people, where hunters, put their time and treasure uh, in not only setting aside and, 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 and conserving lands and waters, but also restoring, protecting, and, and really regenerating marginalized places that can be very healthy for all kinds of species. Mm. And when you look at conservation organizations that are focused on one species, the work that they do benefits hundreds or thousands of, of related species that, that live in those, in those environments. Um, and I think that's the part of where then, again, the perspective to the non-hunter trying to relate to them of we work to take care of the holistic, um, um, the holistic situation, but then we'll hunt the individual animals within there and res- in a respectful way, in an ethical way. Mm-hmm. And it may become part, we're part of that. And that I think is another aspect of it, I think is getting into the humility side of it. And I think if you think about a Christian pr- tradition, you know, some people will be like, well, it's not compassionate to, to, to uh, shoot that animal. But I think when we are connected and part of the natural environment and a participant rather than an observer, I think it has a certain amount of humility with it too that says we're responsible to take care of it, but we're also a participant and we can take part in it and mm-hmm. and uh, get our sustenance in the most healthy way, in the most responsible way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're not just heading to the grocery store and looking for the grass-fed beef. And we might do that too, but we're going out and harvesting it ourselves. Yeah, and uh, there's all sorts of arguments that are not that difficult to make that 
you know, a white-tailed deer, uh, let's take one of the white-tailed deer that I shot um, last weekend, you know, that lived two and a half years in the forests of central Minnesota. Uh, Both the deer I shot were extremely healthy, (laughs) you know, beautifully marbled with fat, had beautiful coats, both thankfully tested negative for CWD. Um, They lived uh, a so much more beneficent life. I don't know if that's the right word, like a a beautiful life. Let's put it that way. They, both those deer lived so much more beautiful life than any um, hog or cow or chicken that I would buy from the store. Not that those animals were miserable because I don't necessarily attribute like human. I'm not trying to anthropomorphize an animal and say they have feelings in the way you and I have feelings. I don't know that a hog, you know, or a, or a, or a cow in a, in a pen is happy or sad. I just think that that deer by basically any measurement lived a more beautiful life in the woods than... Uh, a, a commercially raised animal, livestock animal, and um, and it goes to f- it, it it goes to feed my family it, at the height of its health, and that you know what's what do, what does a deer live in the woods of Minnesota? Four years, maybe, maybe five. Yeah. So I'm maybe cutting that deer's life a bit shorter than it would naturally have lived, but it would have ended up being eaten by an, a predator. I mean, it wasn't just going to die of old age. That's not how prey animals like white-tailed deer, you know, meet their demise. They're always eaten uh, by a, a predator animal at the end. Even if it, they die of disease, they'll be quickly consumed by a predator. So again, just like we keep saying, it, it's entering into this circle and I will say that, like, it. What? Uh, I I don't know exactly how to say this, but also beyond the meat, like just watching an animal die, is a. I mean, it's not an easy experience. No. And I hope that it won't become easier for me as I get older. Um, I don't enjoy that part of it. But I also know that that is a part of it, and that honestly, probably someday, you know, somebody's going to watch me die. Whether it's my kids who are by my bedside if I'm dying, or you know, if it's somebody who comes up upon my body after a car wreck. I mean, it. That's also going to be part of my story. So I want to stay in touch with that, and I don't want to be inured to that aspect of the human experience. And I think you touch on some of the reasons why it's important to hunt and, and, um, and the value of it. I think exactly like you just described those deeper, meaningful things. The, um, I, I cringe sometimes when people, um, use more practical rationales, either, in, in uh, most often I hear it with people who aren't hunters and don't necessarily understand it, but they'll make a statement such as, um, with deer, 
I understand that that they need to be managed because of the the car accidents and because of the agricultural um, challenges of, of destroying crops or or in suburban areas that they're too thick and are eating everyone's uh, pansies. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, and I I guess my response to that generally is. Yes, that is a reason for any benefit of hunting, but it's not the it's not the primary. It's it's mm-hmm. because I think that's a that quickly and I and I I guess maybe I jumped to a, a defensive hunting position of you know that's a very transactional thing and that can be done in any number of different ways. That can be professionally mm-hmm. managed um, and in any number of different, different aspects of how, of how a, a species is managed. Hunting is one of the tools that's utilized, but it's not the primary driver. That's right. People I hunt. agree. Yeah. yeah. Because if that were the case, then obviously we would say, well, Mark and Tony shouldn't go out hunting. Like we should hire those U S fish and wildlife snipers who come into thin herds, um, in metro areas and just like they should come in at night and use night night vision goggles and they should just take out deer you know and bring them to butchers and, and hide it like you said hide it under the yeah, cover right, <laughs> right 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 um yeah. and and i you know i i wrote an i wrote an editorial in the minneapolis paper a couple months back defending the paper for putting trophy shots of of deer in the paper during deer season. Look, I don't love the grip and grin photos. You and I have talked about this before. And I think, you know, the the tide is kind of turning against the grip and grin photos. Nevertheless, I'm glad that the newspaper publishes photos of here's this 13 year old kid with her first deer that she ever shot. Here's this 78 year old lady who, you know, has, I I saw one the uh, today or yesterday that was like, she's, this is the 26th deer she shot over the last 50 years. And you know, there's blood in the photo and, and there's often a firearm in the photo. There's all sorts of things that upset the sensibilities of more urban type people, but I am glad the paper persists in publishing these photos because they are, again, this is, it's all a piece of what you and I are talking about here, this cycle of predation that we're all in and let's not hide it away. Let's stay in touch with life and death. Right. No, I completely agree. You know, and and be honest about it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, there's a quote, I forget what it is, and I, I believe that uh, Aldo Leopold uh, is attributed to saying, and, and, and maybe it's even in San, San Coney Almanac, I forget, but it, it is to the effect of saying, you know, the, the hunter is, in hunting ethics, are, are critically important because unlike so many other aspects of life, where you're in society, there's maybe even an audience, take team sports, professional team sports, or any types of youth team sports, Mm -hmm. as an example. You have a crowd watching you, and so there's a certain amount of of built-in accountability there. Mm -hmm. I have to to do the right thing. I have to make the right choice. I have to play the game fairly, if you will. Uh, Hunting, to me, is is the ultimate measure because there is no crowd there. Mm -hmm. You're only accountable to yourself. 
Are you taking an ethical shot? Are you holding off for the right reasons? Um, you know, how does how does that factor in to to your your thoughts about hunting? You know, one of the things I've liked about hunting as an adult onset hunter is that there is there is talk of ethics. Um, it, it's like baked into the cake of hunting is the talk of ethics, and you learn things, you learn phrases like fair chase and wanton waste. You know, these these kind of topics that thanks to people like you know, uh, Aldo Leopold and thanks to like the people who founded Boone and Crockett's, um, those, those kind of conversations about ethics are so lacking in our society. It's funny because you know, when you go to seminary to get trained to be a minister, you have to take a class on Christian ethics, but then you get out into the parish and you're doing pastoral ministry and you don't really talk about ethics. Like what are the ethics of this job of being a pastor? It's just kind of one of those classes you have to take to check the box. That's interesting. Um, Yeah. And, but you think about it in a lot of, you know, I've got another brother who's an attorney and another brother who's a physician and their grad school educations also were like very, very minimal ethics were taught for the lawyer and the doctor, um, just like the bare minimum. And I love the fact, uh, I love that about hunting, that we do talk about ethics, that, you know, when you and I get together and, um, you know, in, in the organization that you and I are both members of, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, I know there's a lot of talk of ethics, um, and I love that about it because it's it's an aspect of life that goes back to well, I mean that you know it goes back to ancient Greece. Aristotle wrote in, in like maybe I think in my top ten books of all time, Nicomachean Ethics. Um, so so to talk about how human beings ethically behave goes back you know twenty five hundred years, and I love that hunting is a area in my life where it's it's required of me to think about and and exactly what you're talking about I I just had that conversation with my son you know it's it's very easy to shoot animals out of season it's very easy you know our family owns 275 acres so um, it's very easy it would be very easy for us to shoot deer of the wrong sex or more deer than we have tags for. And nobody would ever know, you know, very easy for us to haul. uh, You know, that time in Minnesota, you, you have it every year. I know, I don't know. It's late May, early June when the crappie bite is just like every cast you pull in a crappie. Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, you know that time, you know how easy it is to, to haul in too many crappies. And I'm not just talking about what the mandated limit is, from the Minnesota DNR, I'm talking about like taking too many crappies, more crappies than you can eat or more crappies out of the lake than the lake population can replace, you know, or taking a good, good one, similar to that, or, you know, and, and this is, again, it's, it's a, it's a gray space for a lot of people, but um, taking a a ton of sunnies when they're on their beds. That's right. Uh, Exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah. And those, those are the, I think those are the really good questions and topics to be discussing. And it's not, and it is, like you said, it's not the legality side of it. It's the ethical side of it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to be confronted with those questions in a very, in a very real way and have a community that, that discusses it. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm just thankful as an adult onset hunter to have taken up this activity that demands of me some kind of ethical reflection, you know, when I'm in the middle of it, because like you say, a lot of the times when you're hunting, it's a relatively solitary affair. I, I, I've been hunting for, you know, many, 20 years now, and I've never been stopped by a, 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 a game warden and asked mm-hmm. to see my license. So, you know, for 20 years, I've been pursuing this activity under my own recognizance, basically, and like to think that I've been doing it ethically. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, and there's, and there's wonderful books out there for everybody listening. You know, I'll, I'll put, I'll put a link to, you know, there's, uh, Beyond Fair Chase by Jim Posowitz, a uh, mm-hmm. very close connection to backcountry hunters and anglers like you talked about. Gassette, who wrote Meditations on Hunting. Tovar Cerulli, The Mindful Carnivore. Uh, Ted Karasot, you know, Blood Ties. And I think these are all examples of great books for new hunters or experienced hunters mm-hmm. to, to read and to think about those issues. And I think there are wonderful texts on the ethics of hunting and, and why people come to it and how they approach it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think it's, I think it's important. So, so Tony, you've, uh, you mentioned it earlier. You, you got a book that's maybe going to be coming out at some point. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what is, uh, what's the focus of it? Well, it's titled the God of wild places. And it's really, you know, it's a, it's a memoir of sorts. It's my journey kind of out of organized religion and into hunting and the outdoors as the place where I get my spiritual needs met, you know, where I where I search for the transcendent, where I search for the divine, where I search for God. Um, that's what the book's really about. So, yeah, I've written it and... Um. Yeah, it's interesting. My mom, my mom read the manuscript and said, uh, "You probably never will get asked to preach ever again at a church." <laughs> and I said, "Well, I don't know. It depends on what kind of church. I think some people would probably welcome it, but uh, yeah, I'm, I've got it out to a few publishers, and hopefully, they're considering it." Um, so, yeah, fingers crossed, prayers said, you know, that kind of thing. Well, good. Well, we'll uh, when it comes out, I'm sure it will. We'll uh, have you back on and talk about it. If not, That'd be, if not that would be great. That would be great. I, w- I would love that. Yeah. So uh, if people want to hear more of your thoughts and perspectives on things. Uh, where How should, would where- they not? How could they not want to hear more, Mark? They can- <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> they can go back into the archives of the Reverend Hunter podcast and see the the uh, conversation you and I had where I was the one asking the questions and you were the one giving the answers, but that was a great conversation. Yeah. 
Um, my website is reverendhunter.com. I think if you just Google Reverend Hunter, I'm the one who comes up now. Uh, it's a pretty small niche. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, and I've got, you know, you can find also on my website, you can find a bunch of stuff I've written about uh, the Boundary Waters in the in the Minneapolis paper um, and just some other. Last year, didn't you? Yeah, we did the did the Grand Portage in 2020 and wrote about that as kind of an epilogue to a, a series that I had written in 2019 about my son and me going to the Boundary Waters and following the Voyager's Highway. So it's a very, I know it is for you too. It's, it's a very, very special, meaningful place to me. And um, a few years ago, I just made a commitment to myself that I was going to go to the Boundary Waters once a year as long as I'm physically able or until I die. So um, I've been, you know, I've been keeping that promise to myself and I figure out a way to get up there at least once, usually twice a year. So I was just listening to a podcast this weekend, which is WTIP, the radio mm-hmm. station, yep. Brand, yep. Right? the only, the only uh, station you can hear up the Gunflint Trail. Yep. And uh, Joe Frederick, our, our friend, uh, Joe was in duck hunting this last month in the Boundary Waters. Awesome. And it was the first time he, he talked about on the, on the podcast how it was the first time they had really ever talked about hunting uh, in the Boundary Waters. And uh, it was it was a great conversation, and they, they got a few ducks. So it was, it was I'm going to have to listen to that because I've, I've paddled around up there, especially like on the Fowl Lakes, on, on North and South Fowl on the yeah. east end, and thought, man, I should paddle in here and duck hunt. Because there yeah. are so many ducks. Those are some shallow, muddy lakes. And, man, there's a lot of ducks up there. Yeah, no, there, it's it's one of those things where it's like, do you, the question would be, do you just pass shoot or are you going to haul decoys? Right. <laughs> and are you going to haul half a dozen or a dozen decoys with you? Yeah, but that's the it's question. It's definitely an adventure and a fun one that, uh, that I would think about doing, definitely. I'll, let's do it. Come on, okay. you and me. Okay. Okay. Well, let's do it. Yeah. I think it'll be fun. Everybody (laughs) stay tuned. Yes. Well, good. Well, hey, Tony, thanks so much. And uh, have a good rest of your hunting season here. And uh, maybe get out and do some ice fishing this winter too. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate coming on. It's it's always great uh, listening to your podcast. And I'm a big fan of everything you're doing at Modern Carnivore. So happy to be part of the Mod Carn family. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.